You're listening to EHA Unplugged, Episode 6, PNH. Welcome back to the sixth episode of EHA Unplugged. This is the podcast where you can listen to passionate experts in hematology talking freely about highlights in their field of expertise. Today's podcast speaker is transplant expert, Professor Sean McCann. Well, Sean, the mic is yours. Hello, my name is Sean McCann. I was professor of hematology and academic medicine at Trinity College Dublin and St. James's Hospital Dublin, both of which are in Ireland. And I carried out the first successful bone marrow transplant in Ireland in 1984. I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes about a disease called paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, or PNH for short. And I think that acronym is pretty widely used. So I'll refer to that from now on as paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria is quite a mouthful. Now, I, I suppose the first thing to say is this is a rare disease. And again, um, it, it, the instance is, is, is difficult to get, but it's certainly in or around five per million. And as far as we know, there is no particular increase in any in any part of the world in Southeast Asia, Europe, or in North America. The manifestations of this disease are intravascular hemolysis, thrombosis, dysphagia, erectile dysfunction, and bone marrow hypoplasia. Now, as I said, it's a fairly rare disease, so why would I want to be talking to you about this rare disease? Well, one of the reasons is that it is commonly misdiagnosed. And the simple reason for that is doctors are lazy in that when a patient uh, comes in and complains of dark colored urine, they do a dipstick, which of course is positive. And as we know, a dipstick cannot differentiate between hematuria and hemoglobinuria. So these patients are very commonly diagnosed as having hematuria and referred to a urologist who undertakes expensive and invasive tests, all of which, of course, are normal. Sometimes this is repeated by a second urologist and eventually the penny drops and the patient is referred to a hematologist. So if anybody uh, presents with what looks like hematuria on a dipstick, please ask the laboratory to have a look at the urine sample to make sure it is not hemoglobinuria. The other simple examination, if a diagnosis of PNH is suspected, is to look for iron in the urine, which is a pretty constant finding and is almost uh, definitive in terms of making a diagnosis, certainly of intravascular hemolysis. Now, this is not a new disease. It's been around oh, since the middle of the 19th century and um, until fairly recently was diagnosed, apart from the, the history and examination of the urine, it was uh, uh, diagnosed by using a test called the HAM test, H-A-M, which was invented by Dr. HAM when he showed that red cells from patients with PNH 
would be lies if incubated with acidified serum. Now, you'll be happy or sad to know that this test has now been superseded by flow cytometry, which we'll come back to in a few minutes. Uh, as the two people who are, I suppose, in many people's minds associated with this rare disease are Professor Lucio Luzato and Professor Peter Hillman. And as Professor Luzato points out, the ham test costs about five euros to do and the flow cytometry costs about 150 euros. So everybody, unfortunately, goes straight for the flow cytometry. One of the problems in modern medicine is the complete reliance on very expensive and sometimes unnecessary tests. Uh, what do we know about the uh, etiology of this disease? Well, for the last 15 years or so, we have known, first of all, that this is a benign clonal hemopathy. We used to think that clonal hemopathies were always associated with malignant disease, but here is a benign disease, which is definitely clonal. And it is caused by a mutation in the glycosal phosphatidyl inositol or GPI uh, synthesis by the so-called pig PIGA gene. Um, and this means that the, this deficiency of GPI leads to a deficiency of complement decaying accelerating factor, otherwise known as CD55 and also CD59. And this renders red cells or erythrocytes exquisitely susceptible to intravenous hemolysis, thrombosis, and a lot of the mortality and morbidity in patients with this rare but sometimes catastrophic syndrome. It's also important to remember that granulocytes and platelets may be affected and be part of the PNH clone. Um, now, there is a huge variation in the clinical spectrum of this disease, from a very mild anemia to full-blown severe anemia, intravascular hemolysis, thrombosis, and sometimes very severe dysphagia. It's also important, and if we look back at the original data of Sir John Dacey in the Hammersmith Hospital in London some 20 or 30 years ago, that if followed up, some patients with PNH will have a spontaneous recovery. We have no idea why that should be. It has also been pointed out by a number of investigators that all patients with PNH not only have this abnormal clone, but also have an un underlying bone marrow deficiency. In some patients with PNH, there is a definitive diagnosis of aplasia or SAA, and some patients will develop SAA in the course of their PNH disease. As we said, if the disease is suspected from the clinical and pathological signs, then flow cytometry for CD55 and 59 and also FLAER, known as FLAER, using a fluorescent label, pro 
aerolysin for neutrophils and monocytes is now the diagnostic test which is used in all laboratories in patients being treated for PNH. It's also important to state that in patients with SAA, very small clones, perhaps 1 or 2% of erythrocytes with the P, which appear to be part of the PNH clone can be detected. This is not PNH. PNH is a syndrome, as I've already described, and is not just the presence of minute clones in the bone marrow. It is believed by Lucio Luzato and other investigators that if you look hard enough, all people, normal people that is, will have a small number of PNH positive cells in their bone marrow. And perhaps the pathogenesis of PNH, at least in part, is due to the marrow hypoplasia and the expansion of this PNH positive clone. Now, this disease is extremely troublesome to the patient and associated with severe morbidity. And until relatively recently, the only treatment uh, was supportive care with red cell transfusion, folic acid supplementation in view of the chronic hemolysis, and iron. Now, the administration of iron to patients with PNH was a highly controversial subject until relatively recently. Uh, some investigators believed that the administration of iron could precipitate a hemolytic crisis. However, it is now believed by investigators treating this rare disease that all patients should receive iron supplementation as there is significantly iron loss in the urine and patients even who have chronic uh, transfusion dependence do not suffer as a rule from iron overload. The only definitive curative treatment in the long term is allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation, or HCT. This is curative therapy, particularly appropriate to younger patients, although it carries the risks of graft-versus-host disease and, of course, infertility, which is a particular problem for female patients, although, although with, cyclos with cyclophosphamide only and the absence of radiation in the conditioning, then then infertility may not be inevitable. More recently, happily, we have a new, again, kid on the block known as Echolizumab. Terrible name, I know. This is a monoclonal antibody with terminal C-complement inhibition. And it is extremely effective in stopping all the symptoms and signs of PNH for which patients are extremely grateful. Are there problems? Well, the drug itself is relatively expensive, so therefore in developing countries it may not be available, and patients require an intravenous infusion at two weekly intervals, which in many countries will mean hospitalization in the day ward, which is highly inconvenient for patients as the treatment is indefinite. Because it is a strong anti-complement uh, drug, then patients should be vaccinated against meningococcal disease 
uh, this can be overwhelming in patients who have received this drug. Now, one of the things you have to explain to patients who are going to um, embark on this monoclonal antibody therapy is that their hemoglobin may not return to normal, even though their symptoms may completely disappear. And this presumably is due to the underlying deficiency of hematopoiesis in the bone marrow. Happily, many patients become transfusion independent. Some have a mild degree of anemia, 100 or 110 grams per liter, which does not require infusion. And a small number, perhaps 20%, in spite of the monoclonal antibody, will require, will require recurrent red cell transfusion, which of course is very disappointing for the patients. In certain countries, such as the UK, administration of the monoclonal antibody can be given in the home by trained healthcare workers, which of course is extremely beneficial to the patient as it means they do not have to visit the hospital on a regular basis. What about HCT? Well, this is a controversial area. As you said, it's the only treatment which provides long-term cure, although in some investigators' opinion, this should be confined to younger patients, perhaps patients under the age of 20 years who have a compatible bone marrow uh, sibling donor. So it's a rare disease. It introduces some very interesting pathobiology. It is treatable with a new monoclonal antibody and definitive therapy with HCT is possible, but is also sometimes hazardous. So the first thing and the last thing to say is that you won't diagnose this condition unless you think about it. And if you have a patient with suspected hematuria, make sure that's not hemoglobinuria and send them for all the wrong investigations. Thank you. I'm now going to talk just briefly about a real life scenario of a patient with paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria or PNH. This is a mid 30 year old female who's a civil servant who was referred to our department because her hematologist was retiring. She had a diagnosis of PNH for about 10 years and was given supportive care with red cell transfusions, folate supplementation and iron. It's of interest that when she was originally referred to her family doctor, she was thought to have hematuria. And as is classical, and I already mentioned, she was referred not to one, but to two urologists who carried out extensive investigations with ultrasound, IVPs, CT scans, before somebody realized that in fact she had hemoglobinuria and not, hemoglo not hematuria. This lady was married, but had no children or pregnancies, and she denied cigarette smoking and the use of recreational drugs, and she imbibed alcohol on very rare occasions. Following a long discussion, she was advised about the use of the monoclonal antibody, um, and uh, to which she complied and had 
meningococcal vaccination prior to the treatment. She had a dramatic response to the monoclonal antibody, specifically her uh, esophageal problems, dysphagia, which had been very troublesome, completely disappeared. Unfortunately, she is one of the 20% of patients whose hemoglobin did not recover and remained at about eight, 80 grams, 80 uh, grams per liter. So she did require recurrent red cell transfusion. This was carried out in the hospital with leukocyte depleted irradiated red cells. About 10 days following one of the monoclonal antibody infusions, she developed severe right upper quadrant pain and fever. She was examined and the Murphy sign was positive and a presumptive diagnosis of cholelithiasis and or uh, uh, cholecystitis was made. She was admitted to hospital, started on broad spectrum antibiotics intravenously and an ultrasound examination confirmed multiple gallstones. Um, blood cultures taken before antibiotics and MSU were negative. Happily, her fever resolved within a couple of days and her gallbladder was removed laparoscopically without any problems. While in hospital, she was given subcutaneous low molecular weight heparin on a daily basis. She then requested that her siblings be typed to see if she had an HLA match sibling in view of her persistent requirement for red cell transfusion. Again, happily, one of her siblings, her sister, was a fully HLA matched donor and agreed to donate bone marrow. Following the insertion of a right atrial catheter, she was conditioned again with cyclophosphamide, cyclosporin, and short methotrexate. She was also given fludarabine and ATG because of her history of multiple red cell transfusions, which increased her chances of either graft rejection or graft-versus-host disease. She received an infusion of 1.8 by 10 to the 8 kilograms, by 10 to the 8 uh, nucleated cells per kilogram of her body weight from her donor, and about two weeks after the infusion developed severe gut and, graft versus, gut and skin graft-versus-host disease. Stop. Uh, um, this responded rapidly to um, intravenous corticosteroids. Chimerism studies at three, six, and 12 months revealed her to be a donor chimera, and at 12 months, her cyclosporin was gradually withdrawn. Happily, she now is transfusion independent, is a full donor chimera, and has no signs or symptoms of the underlying PNH. So it's a complicated disease. Think about the diagnosis and treatment is now possible with monoclonal antibodies. And of course, HCT, HCT still has a role to play in the management of this rare condition. Thank you. That was Professor Sean McCann for episode six of EHA Unplugged. For other topics, we highly recommend the rest of this podcast series. For now, thank you for listening. And hey, 
If you are passionate about hematology yourself, why not contact us and start your own podcast episode? You can reach us via education at ehaweb.org. Goodbye.